episode 52, Clocked. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an April 9th, 2007 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. The West Bottoms of Kansas City could be rough, but when the 1903 flood rolled into town, let's just say things became a little suffocating. Join Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we examine a clock from the West Bottoms that was frozen in time by the waters of this devastating flood. You'll find out that despite 100 years of levee construction and emergency planning, people today react to floods pretty much like they did in 1903. Then, we give love a bad name by investigating the connection between newspaper editor William Allen White and rocker Bon Jovi when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. Was this Pulitzer Prize-winning writer from Emporia, Kansas, a sucker for a good power ballad? Plus, as promised, we read the correspondence between White and KU's legendary coach, Fog Allen. Turns out, White was a bit of a bookworm and Fog a jock and the two didn't seem to get along. But first, clocked. Good morning, Michaela. Good morning, Um, Today we're going to talk about a large wall clock that almost drowned in the 1903 flood. Um, This clock is about two feet tall with a wood casing. It's got a large white face and an interesting calendar feature on it. on a glass plate near the bottom is the phrase flood watermark 1903. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But first, Nikayla, uh, I want you to give us a little background on the clock itself. Okay. Um, it was used at a place called Johnston's Cafe, which was across the street from the old Union Depot in the West Bottoms of Kansas City. Nikayla, what was the West Bottoms and what does its name tell us about the location? Well, the West Bottoms, um, and the name should tell you Bottoms, there's potential for flooding, um, was also known as the Central Industrial Business District. It's an area immediately to the west of downtown Kansas City, Missouri, and it's located at the confluence of the Kansas and Missouri Rivers. Um, It's one of the oldest areas of the city. The Union Depot, like you mentioned, the Kansas City Livestock Exchange, and the Kansas City Stockyards are all located there. They um, were located there, or they, they currently are located there? They were, and they're still, those are still the stockyards, and there's still rail lines in that neighborhood. If you go there now, you can still see those Right, because you, I mean, when you go through Kansas City, if you're on I-70, you're pretty much driving over the West Bottoms, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, that's right. And you'll notice it because um, you'll know you're in that area. There's a lot of old red brick buildings that look like factories and warehouses. Also in this neighborhood were a lot of the poor immigrant communities. It was a pretty miserable place to live because if you think about it, you have a lot of, well, the stockyards themselves, there are a lot of manufacturing plants down there. It was kind of a dirty, filthy, stinky place to live, and that's where the poor the poor communities could afford to be. So a lot of them were located there. As, as any industrial in any large center, large city at the turn of the century, it was a nasty, stinky place. Like Chicago right. would have yeah. would have been the same. That's just how they were. Right, and you could find places like that in New York, Boston, everywhere, and that was where you typically found it, found your poor, poor and immigrant communities. And it was true of Kansas City as well. 
Um, as we mentioned now, it's mostly in use factories and warehouses, and many of those are being turned into lofts. It's kind of a cool, trendy place to live right now, and the lofts are really, really neat. So, Just some clarification. Um, old Union Depot is different than what we think of as Union Station, right? That's right. Because these are both sort of, they were kind of icons of Kansas City Railroad. Right. The old Union um, Depot was located closer to the river. And if you go to the article about this artifact on the website, you can see a picture of taken from the old Union Depot. And you can kind of see the front of the building there. It's a little different style than the building is now. Um, and Johnson's Cafe, you can see it across the street. It's at the far right of the image. Um, at the turn of the century, there was enough train traffic in Kansas City that the old Union Depot could not handle the volume of people that, that were coming through the station. And the city was already considering, in 1903, expanding the station. Um, the flood affected that because once uh, the water reached eight feet deep inside the station, and they started thinking, maybe there's not potential for expansion here. And the the station was moved to where it is now, where we know it closer to downtown Kansas City, further inland, if you will. And maybe a little higher elevation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, from looking at the photographs um, of Johnston's Cafe, it was pretty small. Why would the owner, J.A. Johnston, why would he have used such a large clock? Well, the clock looks a little larger, a little fancier than maybe what we'd find in a cafe now. But um, I think it was probably related to the fact that the cafe was across the street from the, the train station and people who were coming in to have something to eat or grab a cup of coffee or whatever would be on a schedule. They would need to know what time it was, you know, if they were going to be missing their train or how much time they had left. And also if it was large, maybe people could see it from the street as they were walking by. I think it was probably related to, to the travel schedules. The 1903 flood uh, was pretty massive, and that's where this clock, that's where its tail sort of ends or begins, was in this huge flood. Uh, but this flood didn't all happen at once. It wasn't a flash flood. Can you right. tell us about the flood's buildup and how that kind of impacted or played out in Kansas City? That May, it rained all month. And the rain, it was like you said, it was not like a flash flood. It wasn't a downpour that happened one day, and then it flooded, and that was it. This was a steady buildup of an entire month's worth of rain. And it wasn't just raining in Kansas City. It was raining across the Midwest and the Central Plains. And if you look at newspaper accounts from the time, you know, there was flooding in Ohio. There was flooding in other places besides just Kansas City. So it was a really wet year. And that's, and that's a problem for a place that's the confluence of two rivers. <laughs> that's because right. when you have, you know, when there's heavy rains in the region. It's going to end up It's in all the rivers. going that's somewhere. Right. So it's even, at this point, it's even raining in western and central Kansas. Um, it is rainier in May and June in Kansas, typically, but this was an extraordinary year. Um, in eastern Kansas, it rained 10 to 14 inches that month, which is 2 to 11 inches above average. In far western Kansas, there was um, about an inch and three quarters to three inches in excess. And in central Kansas, there was seven to eight inches in excess. And the flooding went, went as far west as Ellsworth, which is in um, central Kansas. So this led to rivers and streams in western Kansas and southern Nebraska and northern Missouri to fill, and it all flowed to Kansas City. It flowed to the Kansas River, and the Kansas River flowed to Kansas City and met with the Missouri at the West Bottoms. So, <laughs> so it's interesting. The West Bottoms, an industrial area, was probably ex as successful as it was because it could ship out goods. Sure. So its success was based on, based on the fact that it was sitting on these rivers. Right. Which, in turn, will 
shortly destroy it. And as an interesting point, um, the Kansas River was two to five miles wide along its entire route. And the Kansas River today, obviously... Maybe a quarter mile wide on a good day. We're talking Sometimes two to five it's miles. Like zero inches yeah, wide. It's like a trickle. And the Missouri River was two to six miles wide. So we have a lot of water all heading to one area. Okay, so that was sort of the buildup. And by that point, the, the ground is kind of saturated. But right. things really start to get intense around March 30th. What happened to the West Bottoms on that day? Well, things started getting interesting, actually, on the 21st of May. Um, that day, the water began to rise. And by the 28th of May, it was above what all of my sources call the danger line. I don't know how high the danger line was because no one said the danger line was 12 feet or, you know, whatever. But by in seven days, it was considered a dangerous situation. At that point, May 28th, water was flowing through the streets, and some people began to leave their homes. The, the businesses in the West Bottoms had water in their cellars. The sewers were stopped, and train service was crippled. Bridges were endangered. So at this point, things are getting a little worrisome, but... People can still function, trains can still run, businesses are still operating. By May 30th, the date you mentioned, the Missouri River was 25 feet deep and still rising. Business stopped. Everything was closed. There was no train service to the west, so you know all this water is coming in from the west. There, you can't go west, and the only place you can telegraph or telephone are points east. So there's, And this, this is pretty amazing, because if you think about it, nowadays we take for granted our communication with the outside world. It's so automatic, so easy. And we have multiple ways to do that. You know, we've got computers, we've got cell phones. Westward, they're just, like, cut off. That would have been really weird, because how would that have impacted? You can still call everything east, but you can't call anything west. Yeah, it's really strange. That's the situation on May 30th. On the 31st, the the river was 27.5 feet deep and was rising. By that time, 20,000 people are homeless, and only those who were unable to escape were still there. And some of these people, the immigrant families, the poorer families, they have nowhere to go, you know. And also, their homes are all they have, you know. If they're immigrants, this is America to them, you know. This is what they've got, and they don't want to abandon that. What What are their other options? So they're trying to hang on as long as possible. Public services are down, and 16 of the 17 bridges over the Kansas River were destroyed. Um, by so June, not only can you not phone call West, you can't even travel. Yeah, pretty much swimming is your only <laughs> option, and that's not really safe because, you know, the water is 25 feet deep. On June 1st, the next day, the river was 35 feet deep, so it rose 7.5 feet in 24 hours in Jeez. a day. Um, at this point, the rivers had merged. There was no Kansas River. There was no Missouri River. There was the Canmo Sea, pretty much. Canmo <laughs> Sea. It was just all water. Houses were under 8 to 12 feet of water. The water was 8 feet deep around the Union Depot, and the gas plant had shut down. So now we have a city that has no light, no water, and the streetcars aren't functioning. Mm-hmm. So pretty much it's just... It's pretty a pretty desperate situation. So the flooding was severe in Kansas City in 1903. Um, and you were starting to allude to it, but do you see a lot of... It almost sounds like there's some parallels between the flooding um, in 1903 and some of the effects of Hurricane Katrina in 2005 on the Gulf Coast. Can you tell us a little bit about what you saw as parallels? Sure. Well, let's, let's establish how severe this flood really was. Um, Within the history of Kansas and Missouri, it is considered to be one of the worst floods in area history. Um, Like you mentioned, there's potential for minor flooding every year. You know, it rains a lot. There's going to be a little flooding, but it's not going to be 35 feet deep river water. 
Um, this one goes down with the 1844 flood, the 1951 flood, and the 1993 flood as being some of the worst floods that have happened in this area when people and, and their businesses and crops were destroyed. You know, people lost everything. Um, the damage in the 1903 flood was particularly shocking, even more so than the 1844 flood because the area was more populated and there were more businesses. In 1844, you really didn't have, you know, you had your bare-bones settlers who were just coming out this way. There, you know, it wasn't really an established area yet. And so people didn't have as much to lose. That's what made this flood. You know, people were shocked by this. They, it was, you know, unbelievable to them. And Native tribes in the area had tried to tell them when they started settling in the area, you don't want to build there. That's, it's going to flood. This is, this is, you know, this land is flood prone. And people didn't listen. You know, it was rich soil because it's so wet. And farmers are building, you know, in the floodplain. Mm-hmm. And that probably Never was Never a good idea. Yeah. So they lost, they lost a lot of crops in the 1903 flood. The estimated damage in Kansas City alone was $15,550,000 in 1903. In Yeah. I bet that's really expensive because it hits the most commercially significant part of the city. Absolutely. That's right. So you have, um, once the water receded, everything's covered in two to four inches of mud. There are 30-foot gouges in streets. Rail tracks are torn to bits. Homes are inhabitable. The Missouri um, Pacific Yards lost 3,000 head of cattle and hogs, and they were found there dead in piles of debris 30 feet deep. So it's it's a so big... So not only do you have your typical nasty flooding, flooding nastiness, but you now have... <laughs> Animal and cow carcasses everywhere. Exactly. It's a disgusting mess, yeah. So in terms of comparing this to Katrina, um, we obviously see the lack of water control. Everybody will remember after Katrina there was a lot of talk about an inadequate levee system and it failing and flooding the city. Well, obviously Kansas City didn't have the levee system, but you have the same problem. Lack of levees, floods, floods the um, you know business areas, homes, people are losing things. We also see the huge effect on low, a low-income area and the questions about rebuilding it afterwards. Um, we're continuing now to hear about you know, the Lower Ninth Ward. They're questioning, do you rebuild there? I mean, that's where some of your you know, lower economic status people are living. And now they're wondering, well, should we even rebuild there? Is it safe? But those people, that's their home. You know, they want to go back there. Mm-hmm. And you had the same thing after this flood. You, know, you have a decimated area, but where are people going to go? Where else are they going to live? Um, Certainly. And there's a reason like those immigrants were ending up in, in the West Bottoms in Kansas City is yeah. because that was cheap. Absolutely. You know, that was cheap housing. Wealthy people wanted less flood-prone, flood-prone areas. There were also concerns about secondary problems like looting and lawbreaking, which we remember after Katrina was a serious problem. It was also a problem in this flood. Um, there were fires after the water started to recede. There was price gouging because the markets, right, had been flooded, and the goods weren't as plentiful. There's no train service, so how are you going to get more in? Um, a, a dozen eggs went from being fifty cents to being a dollar seventy-five. But you know, we we did see similar things after mm-hmm. after Katrina. There, um, illnesses. People were very concerned about you know diseases being spread in the water, or you know people who were sick not being able to get medical care just because they couldn't get out or in that kind of thing. So there are a lot of similarities between what happened in 1903 and what happened, you know, 100 years later in Katrina. Yeah, in 1903, there's stories, right, of people, um, the immigrants going up to the roofs of their houses to avoid the flood water and stranded there until rescue boats could come through. 
and pull them off. And, of right. course, we saw the same thing in, in 2005 with Katrina. Well, and you could say it's the same feeling behind it. It's your home. They didn't want to leave it. People in New Orleans didn't want to leave their homes either. It was their home. They didn't want to go. According to the owner, this clock logged, I like saying it like that, logged, <laughs> logged its Waterline. last minute at 9.22 on June 3rd, 1903. It was at this point, um, according to the owner, that the water reached its zenith and stopped the clock. So it reached its highest point. Um, you have some doubts about the authenticity of this story, don't you, Nikayla? Well, a little. And I know that people who listen to our podcast before know I often have doubts about the provenance of our artifacts. I'm Actually, he did state that the clock stopped, um, that the, the water reached its high point in the cafe at over seven feet deep, and that clock actually stopped after it had started to recede a little bit. So it was like six and a half feet deep when the clock stopped, um, which leads me to, to some of my doubts. Um, that indicates that the, water, the clock was underwater for some time before it stopped. But if you look at the clock, there's no water damage to the case, and mm -hmm. it's wood. You would think that there would be some discoloration, maybe some splitting or warping, you know, from where it dried out or something. The water didn't go deep enough then to reach the works of the clock. The damage is at the bottom of the clock. So I don't know if the water could be said to be responsible for stopping it when it didn't reach the, 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 mechanical the mechanics part, part of, of it. the clock. I'm not a clock expert, but I'm just guessing, you know, and maybe humidity or something also had an effect. I don't know. Well, because it's a wood clock, you know, yeah. and water sitting in flood water, particularly flood water, can really eat away at the finish on a clock. Sure. And there's no sign that there's any damage to the finish on this. No. And, um, um, and it, it, the clock has not been refinished. Mm -mm. No. Um, and it's also interesting because he then added the little glass glass window at the right. bottom in gold lettering with a line right. that says, you know, this is the high water mark. Which it's interesting. I mean, I think that that part could be seen as, you know, you can interpret that as being how devastating this flood was, that he would mark it. I mean, it just and even if the water didn't stop the clock, that's remarkable in and of itself. That that flood was so devastating, he found it necessary to mark the mark the flood mark on his clock that was hanging in his cafe. I think that's kind of interesting. It's a testament to the severity of the event. But you know, okay, I'm impressed by that. You don't have to tell me that the water stopped the clock. You know, with a name like the West Bottoms, um, that clearly indicates that there could be <laughs> propensity for flooding of this area. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, if you were to rename some areas of Kansas that are typically prone to flooding, what would you call them? Let's start out with, uh, in 2007, you know, the, the city of Coffeyville had some pretty serious flooding, which right. was compounded by an oil leak from a refinery. Yeah. Um, so if you were to rename Coffeyville along the sort of West Bottoms vein, what would mm -hmm. you call it? Well, I think Coffeyville, since they had the oil spill that went along with the flooding, I would rename it Exxon Valdez, Kansas. Because who builds an oil refinery that close to a river? That's true. Yeah. Only Exxon would do that. Only Exxon, yeah. Um, okay. Um, North Topeka had some pretty serious flooding, as a lot of, a lot of eastern Kansas did in 1951, but right. North Topeka was pretty bad. Uh, what would you rename North Topeka? Well, you've heard of Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, right? North Topeka would be renamed Sink or Swim, Kansas. Because <laughs> that's what you had to do, sink or swim. That's it was right. bad. That's, I like it. 
Finally, 1993, which, you know, in recent memory, we were around during the 1993 flood. It was pretty intense. Um, In particular, some uh, parts of north-central Kansas were really hit, um, like Wakanda Lake near Cocker City, Kansas. Yeah. What would you rename Cocker City, Kansas? (laughs) Well, when I think of Cocker City, I think of the world's largest ball of twine. Well, who doesn't when you're in Cocker City? So I would rename Cocker City Bowie, Kansas. I don't know if a giant ball of twine could double as a flotation device, but even if it didn't, it weighs nine tons. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> that's a good question. Does that ball of twine float? You know who that's a and question how close for? And how close were we to finding out in 1993? Yeah, we should ask David Letterman because, you know, he does that will it float thing. Maybe they could sink a big ball of twine. <laughs> All right, Nikayla. Well, thanks for giving us some, gest- some suggestions. I'll forward those to the respective cities. Great. Um, and thanks for telling us about the clock. It's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Alawite. And joining me today, as usual, is Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin. Hello. And Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hi. Uh, we'll get to this week's challenge in just a minute. But first, uh, last week, while looking for a connection between William Alawite and the NCAA basketball tournament, Nikayla, I believe you came across some interesting letters. Can you tell us a little bit about those letters, um, how you found them, and share some of the text from them? Well, the letters were exchanged between White and Fog Allen, who is the basketball coach at KU, um, in 1927. They talked about athletics at universities, which Fog Allen, um, of course, being a basketball coach, was very supportive of athletics, and William Allen White, not so much, which we've talked about before, how he thought football should be taken out of colleges because it was too violent. So these letters kind of illustrate another point of that. And interestingly enough, they also talk about um, – student athletes having jobs and getting paid for those jobs, which is a topic that comes up over and over again in sports now because student athletes aren't allowed to work, but they need some money. And then that gets into the whole issue of athletic support, mm-hmm. a- athletic boosters and, you know, the, the um, ethics issues there. So William Allen White was a bit of a bookworm, <laughs> uh, not really an athlete. Yeah. <laughs> it, according to his photographs, the many photos we've had, you, you know, he was a bit on the pudgy side. <laughs> I don't think he could run very fast or throw very far. Yeah, I think probably the most he did was walk to the Gazette office every day. Mm-hmm. That was enough exercise as far as he was concerned. <laughs> yeah, check exercise for but today. But his mind was razor sharp. Yes. Pretty sharp. Yes. And well exercised. Yes. So in February of 1927, Fog Allen wrote a letter to William Allen White in which he says, I notice that you have been uneasy and unhappy about the overstressing of athletics in the university. I do not believe that athletics are overstressed at the University of Kansas. In fact, the outcry over the state is more to the effect that we inhibit athletics here more than we should. I assure you that I believe firmly in sane athletics. And then he goes on. Oh, he um, believes in sane athletics. Sane <laughs> athletics. But then he goes on to say, I believe that athletics have a cancerous growth, as do the same as do politics, business, and religion. We have adopt, adopted here at Kansas heretofore a policy that the university would attract its share of young men of athletic talent who desire to pursue a university course. But on account of the tremendous interest in athletics, not only amateur but also professional, it seems as if the normal athletic talent that should be attracted to the university is being diverted to other channels due to the fact that other athletic associations and schools in this state are soliciting personally and through their alumni men who have already determined to come to KU. William Allen White then responds, 
he took that Fog Allen was saying that the College of Emporia, which now is Emporia State University, was one of the schools that was paying students more to come there than KU was willing to put up. Mm-hmm. So um, he addresses that, and then he says, what is the difference whether the university wins or not so far as the scholastic standing of the university is concerned? A football or basketball victory only attracts the undesirable students and not those that you particularly care for. Harvard does not have <laughs> wow. a football victory. That's a, that's a bit of a general statement <laughs> yeah. He goes on to say, Harvard does not need a football victory to make it a great university. Neither does the University of Kansas. Mm. And then he closes the letter by saying, and it seems to me that the big job before the Department of Physical Education in any state university is to keep down the desire for athletic supremacy rather than to fan it. I know this advice gives you heart failure, and yet I hope in the long run you will find it wise advice. Sincerely yours, William Allen White. These are the same arguments that circulate today about athletics yep. at universities. Yeah, nothing new under the sun. It's pretty interesting. I think right. it's interesting that he fought against athletic supremacy and white supremacy because he was very <laughs> anti-Klan, William Allen White. So yeah. apparently didn't like people lording it over. He yes. ran the gamut on yeah. issues. <laughs> He was a busy man. He had so many causes to fight for. When did he sleep? (laughs) All right, Nikayla. Well, thanks for sharing the uh, William Allen White Fog Allen letters with us. Sure. Uh, So now let's get down to the meat and potatoes of the program. Uh, Some six degrees of William Allen White. This week we are connecting the Pulitzer Prize winning writer to Bon Jovi, a glam rock band from the 1980s. And just a little bit of background on Bon Jovi. It's a four-member band um, that started in New Jersey and formed in 1983. Uh, most recognizable is the front man, bon, John Bon Jovi, or John Francis Bon... I believe that's Bon Jovi. Mm-hmm. That, spelled differently. It's yeah. one word. That's his real last name is Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi. <laughs> and he's a junior. <laughs> he's a singer, a songwriter, actor, although that's a little bit arguable. Yeah. And currently the owner of an arena football league, hmm. an arena football league team. The, this band experienced success um, in the 1980s by releasing such songs as You Give Love a Bad Name, Wanted Dead or Alive, and Bad Medicine. Uh, Though their popularity has sort of waned, uh, the band does continue to produce and sell albums. You see John Bon Jovi on a lot of TV shows, you know, making the rounds of talk shows, and he must be very active. Their songs, though, have definitely taken a turn from Wanted Dead or Alive and Bad Medicine to uh, Who Says You Can't Go Home. (laughs) I wouldn't categorize them as glam rock anymore. Not well, anymore. And they lost a lot of their hair, too. Yeah. So they're not really a hair band. Yeah. yeah. Age will do that. But I don't know how you guys feel, but I have found this surprisingly fun to try to connect to William Alloway. I actually had a pretty good time with it. So first I'll give you my solution, and then, Nikayla, I believe you have a solution, correct? That's right. Okay, so my solution. Bon Jovi's mom was a Playboy bunny. Who knew? Did you know that? No. Shocking. So, um, Marilyn Monroe, she was a Playboy centerfold, so they were both worked for Playboy. Marilyn Monroe starred in the movie Bus Stop. Bus Stop was written by a Kansas author, William Inge. Um, William Inge attended the journalism school at, Can- at the University of Kansas, and uh, William Alloway also attended that journalism school at the University of Kansas. So there you have it. Playboy, Marilyn Monroe, <laughs> William Minge, <laughs> KU. <laughs> it all makes sense. I 
bet the Playboy connection to KU has something to do with athletics, because athletics are the source of all evil. That's right. Because you know you got to follow the William Allen White connection. Yeah. I also I was playing around with another one from uh, what is the Keith Sambora? Is that his R- Richard Sambora? Richard, Rich, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I had a connection going between him, Heather Locklear, Dynasty, <laughs> the city of Denver, <laughs> and William Allen And it would have worked, but it wasn't as good. Uh, it sounds like more than six degrees. <laughs> it was a lot. All right, Michaela, what is, uh, what's your solution? Well, like you, I had to go off the Playboy thing just because it's too funny. It's too good. And it's like the only way you can connect William Allen White to Bon Jovi. And apparently soap operas are the way to do it. Much like Dynasty, we get a soap opera in this one. Um, so Bon Jovi's mom, as you mentioned, was a Playboy bunny. Um, also a Playboy bunny was the American actress Susan Sullivan, who some of us may remember as Greg's mom, Kitty Montgomery, on Darm and Greg. <laughs> or those of us who grew up watching Falcon Crest will remember her as Maggie Hartfield, Gerberti Channing, right? I yeah. remember the Channing name. Yeah, okay, so she was on a show, Falcon Crest, with Jane Wyman. Mean old lady. Who played Angela Channing. Jane Wyman also was a well-known movie actress earlier, before her Falcon Crest days. And the first wife of Ronald Reagan, correct? That's right. And she was in the film adaptation of Edna Ferber's book, So Big. And as we know, as we've mentioned many a time, Edna Edna Ferber was BFF with WAW. That's right. Wow, pretty impressive. (laughs) So like I said, it was fun to do. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, But we got better ones coming up. Rebecca, you want to reveal what uh, what the next episode's challenge will be? Yeah, it's going to be a good one. We go international and clandestine. We want you to connect <laughs> William Allen White to the fictional British super spy and ladies' man, James <laughs> Bond. <laughs> Yeah, so if you think you connect, you can connect William Allen White to 007, the man with the license to kill, uh, just send a message to podcast at KSHS.org. That is podcast with an S. That's it for episode 52, Clocked. If you'd like to actually see the clock that survived the 1903 flood, you can by visiting Forces of Nature and exhibit at the Kansas Historical Society in Topeka, or by going to our website, kshs.org. Be sure to come back in two weeks when curator Blair Tarr talks about a jacket from the future farmers of America. The jacket belonged to a young boy named Sharon. Don't mock, though, because today, this boy is known as Wes Jackson, a pioneering biologist that in 1992 won a MacArthur Award which is more commonly known as the Genius Award. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.